The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, several years ago, my wife and I were traveling, and we were in Kentucky, and we visited Mammoth Caves National Park. Anyone else here ever been to Mammoth Caves? All right, a few of you had. This is more of a Midwest, East Coast thing. Mammoth Caves, which I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, is the largest cave system in the world. They estimate that there's somewhere between five to 600 miles of caves that they haven't even yet explored in the national park. It is a vast, vast cave system. And so, because it's so vast, they don't just let it let you walk in because you might go down a cave never to be found again, right? And no one will have, have any idea where you went. And so to go into the caves, they give you a tour guide and you have to sign up. And, and we went in with one of the guides and they're kind of, they, they have some routes that are planned. And so you walk in and it's pre-lit and our guide has lights with him and until we get probably a mile into the cave. And then he, you know, the group's about 30, 40 people. And he says, all right, I just want everyone to get their bearings just to stop, to get a steady foot. He's like, all the electrical lights are going to be turned off. And he's like, then I'm going to turn off the lantern as well. And here we are a mile into the earth. The lights start to fade and it is utter darkness. Not like it's dark outside at night, but like pitch darkness. Like I was like going like this and I'm like, whoa, like there's nothing there. Like the darkness is oppressive, right? It it feels disorienting, it's consuming. You have no idea where is what, and you lose all sense of orientation. It's so overwhelming. And then I remember he took one match and lit it. And with one match, suddenly everything was brought into the light again. Today, we're going to look at a miracle of Jesus. When he encounters someone in utter darkness and he shows up as the light of the world. And what happens when the light of Jesus invades total darkness? And then we're going to see, because this story today is so interesting, because we see most of the text looks at the responses of, of people to what Jesus has done. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them? to John chapter nine. John chapter nine, we are looking at the miracles in the gospel of John. This is the sixth of the sign miracles that we have seen. We're actually gonna be covering all 40 or so verses of John chapter nine today. I believe that they were able to squeeze it into the handout. Last week was like five verses. That was a breeze. This one, they're like, how are we gonna fit this in here? But but they did. So if you don't have a Bible with you, I believe the entire text is in, in the handout. But John jumps in here in John chapter nine and and he picks up this theme that we haven't seen because we're just looking at the miracles, but that flows throughout the gospel of John. And John plays with this idea all the time in his book of darkness and light, darkness and light. And he contrasts this all the time. In the very beginning of the gospel of John in John chapter one, verse four and five, speaking of Jesus, he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And in fact, in just the previous chapter, we're gonna see an allusion to it today, but in just the previous chapter at the Festival of Tabernacles, which light was a main theme in this celebration in Jerusalem, Jesus comes forward in chapter eight, verse 12 and says, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so John 9 comes just after this, probably just after the Feast of Tabernacles or Booth. Jesus is back in Jerusalem is the setting for our story today. Chapter nine, verse one, let's jump in. It says this, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. That's significant, that from birth part that we understand that. We'll see that in a second. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. If you're here with us, when we have been walking through this, you remember this is kind of the attitude that often people had towards suffering, that all suffering was an immediate direct result of sin. And we talked about how sometimes that can be the case, but often it's not. And we see this very clearly here. Jesus is saying, it's not this man's sin, it's not his parents' sin. This man was born this way, not because of any sin, but so that God's works, God's glory might be seen in and through his life. But in their worldview, any human suffering was a direct result of sin. And Jesus pushes back against this category. Verse four, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am here, Jesus says, while I am present, we must do these things. But the time comes when I leave where they would no longer be done. Verse five, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So get this, Jesus encounters the man who's lived his entire life in utter darkness, utter darkness, born blind from birth. Not later on, but he's never seen a a single thing of light in his entire life. And Jesus shows up and says, I am the light of the world. And to show who he truly is, he performs this miracle. Verse six, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Don't worry, we won't be doing that at baby dedication in a couple of weeks, don't worry, all right? He anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Why the mud? We don't know. You, we can speculate, but, but we, we honestly, we do not know exactly why the mud that Jesus does this. But then he says to him, verse seven, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. See, we do know and get some idea of why Jesus sent him to this pool of Siloam. First, it was used in this celebration in the festival of booths that had just been celebrated. And part of the ceremonies, water was drawn from the pool of Siloam. And so Jesus sends him back to that very spot. But notice the name of what Siloam literally means. It means sent. Jesus in the gospels, especially in John, often refers to himself as the one sent from God and he sends him there. So get this, the man sent from God sends a blind man to the pool called sent, all right? There's like sent is all over there. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's making sure that John is in seeing these things that it's not some water that heals him. It's not some magic mud that heals him. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that heals him. And that's why it's portrayed exactly in this way. Most of the text today looks at the response and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But let's not miss the utter life change that's brought about in this man's life by the miracle that Jesus does. Someone born blind in this time 
had no job, no hopes, no family, no career. As we're gonna see, his job was sitting out on the side of the road begging. This utter transformation that Jesus brings into his life. I think it was this last week or the week before, I saw a video online of, of, a, of a couple who, on their wedding day, the bride gave the groom who had suffered color blindness his whole life, the special glasses that allow them to see the color for the first time. And they videoed his reaction as he put him on and he goes, are you serious? He goes, you guys see this every single day? He, like, he was crying, he couldn't believe. And that's just someone going from colorblind to seeing. Imagine going from utterly blind, never seeing a single thing in your life to now having perfect 2020 vision, just like that, because Jesus shows up. It's an utterly transformative miracle that Jesus does in this man's life. So he comes back after the pool of Siloam. My love, it's like he comes back. I'm sure he's shouting, he's rejoicing, he's praising. Verse eight. And today, as we, as we get through this text today, we're gonna to look at four responses to Jesus. Four responses to Jesus and to this miracle that he does. And the first response we see here with the neighbors, right? Verse eight, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Right, everyone's around him debating. Is that who he really is? He's like, yo, I'm right here. Like, stop talking about me. This is awkward. Like, it's me. I'm right here. I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. See, he knew who it was who had sent him. In verse 12, they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Not only did he did not know, he couldn't have even picked Jesus out of a lineup. He's never seen Jesus before. He was blind when he encountered Jesus. Now he can see he has no idea what he looks like. He has no idea who he is. See, the first response to Jesus that we see from the neighbors here in this passage is fascination fascination with Jesus. How did it happen? Where is this guy? Meaning like, hey, can he do this again so that we can see it for ourselves? We want to see this happen. The neighbors here, if you've been with us, are characteristic of the crowds that have been following Jesus. They want to see the show. They want to see these signs. And the neighbors have this expressed interest in Jesus, but it's for selfish or for shallow reasons. See, to have a fascination with Jesus. Lots of us are like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. Jesus is so interesting. What the Bible says is interesting. And we're kind of intrigued by it. But if it stays at the level of fascination in our response to Jesus, it will stay for a time until something else comes along and grabs our attention and our focus. And then we move on to this different fascination. Have you ever met someone who would like just jump from one fascination or interest in life to another? I remember I had a, a friend many years ago who was just like this, super talented guy. But I remember like at one point his life was like all about guitar. Like he loved guitar. And then like a few months later, he was like, I'm going into photography. I'm going to be a professional photographer. And I was like, what about the music? No, no, no. I'm going to be a photographer. And then he was like, no, no, no. Now I'm all into rollerblading. And I was like, people still rollerblade? 
It's like, I thought that was in the 90s when the Ducks movies came out. People still do that. Okay, all right. Like he's in this. And then he got into soccer. Oh, now I'm all into soccer. And it was like every time you, you had no idea what he was going to be into, right? Because it was just like this, that, the other, this, that. That's how sometimes it is if we're just fascinated with Jesus. If we show up and like, oh, hey, this Jesus thing is cool. It's just a matter of time. If we're just here for what Jesus can do for me with a shallow self-interest till something else catches our gaze and we're like, oh, what's this over here? And we've totally walked away from what Jesus has for us. The neighbors to me remind me of a parable that Jesus told in the gospel of Mark. And it was about seed that was scattered on different soils. And the, the seed represented the gospel, the Jesus's words. And the soil represented human hearts and how we receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And one of those soils is the thorns. And Jesus interprets it in Mark chapter 4, verse 18. Where he says that this soil represents those who hear the word of God, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke it out and it proves unfruitful. They're fascinated with Jesus for a time, but other thing comes in, cares of this world, seeking after riches and power. Desires for other things come in and suddenly we abandon it. See, the neighbors just had a passing interest in Jesus. They were fascinated. Jesus wants more from us than just that. He wants more than just a passing interest in him. Verse 13. So the neighbors, trying to get a better grasp of this, do what any good religious person would do. They bring him to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. If you remember here when Jesus did miracles on the Sabbath, we're like, uh-oh, now we know the Pharisees are not gonna be too happy, right? Because the Pharisees had their own categories of what work meant. One of those things is if you spit in the ground and made mud, that was in their mind a category of work, which means Jesus has now violated the Sabbath for them. I do this because it actually wasn't sinful, but in their legalistic mind, he had then sinned. Verse 15, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Notice like his story keeps getting shorter. He's like, how many times do I have to tell you all? The exact same thing. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man, speaking of Jesus, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they again, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. He is one who speaks from God. Verse 18, we're gonna see now the second response here. And it's the response of this man's parents, the parents' response. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind, right? They're like, okay, this is just all a hoax. This is all a hoax. He wasn't actually born blind. This is just an elaborate story. They hadn't believed he'd been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. Good job, parents. Well, well done, well done. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, 
He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, that is the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. See, the second response that people can have to Jesus is the response of fear. The response of fear. Notice this, like there's, there's no love like the love that parents have for children. And imagine a child of yours had been born with a debilitating disease that had afflicted them. This is not a young man. He's an adult at this point for probably safe to say 20-ish years. Then suddenly they get a miraculous, hearing, a miraculous healing. What would your attitude be as a parent? You would be overjoyed, overwhelmed with gratitude. Yet these people come and they hear what the Pharisees have said. They threaten the Pharisees, threaten them, and they just shrink back in fear. They're like, uh, we, we, we don't know who it was. Ask, ask him. Ask him. He's old enough. Don't ask us. Don't, don't kick us out of the synagogue. We want nothing to do with this at all. See, their response kind of doesn't make sense to us, but it makes sense when we think about the fact that they were afraid. Because fear is one of the most powerful motivators to action in the world, whether for good or for bad, right? If you don't believe this, just turn on cable news and wait till the commercials end, right? Fear is intrinsic in everything around us right now because if we can get people scared and we have the solutions and then you have to zone in, you have to listen to us if everything's about to fall apart. is why people haven't left their houses in years. We're, we're fearful of everything out there and it can cause us to do things that in our head make sense, but to everyone else around us is like, that, that just doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense from our perspective that the parents would shrink away from Jesus for fear of the Pharisees. Yet oftentimes still today, as we look after Jesus, as we seek him, fear can stop us from coming to Jesus today. Maybe you're here and you're checking out church. Maybe you grew up in Christianity or you went maybe with a relative from time to time and you're here, but man, you are kind of scared. You're fearful of what it would maybe look like to be a follower of Jesus. That can be a hard thing to overcome. See, maybe we're fearful of like how the, uh, these parents were, of the opinion of others if I change my life and follow Jesus. What will other people say about me? Maybe there'll be social ramifications of following after Jesus. It's fearful to think, what, what would Jesus cause me to change in my life? Any change that we don't know is always fearful. We may think, oh no, what, what will Jesus ask me to do? Sometimes people are fearful because they don't know how God will treat them should they truly come to Jesus. See, fear often drives us away from God, but most of our fears, in fact, I would say probably all of our fears about coming to Jesus are because we have an incorrect perception of who he is. Almost every fear that people have about, this is why I can't follow Jesus, it's because they don't understand who Jesus really is. I have a, a good friend of mine who met me for the first time many, many years ago um, when I was at church. And we had set up a meeting and he's told me this story several times since that he was like terrified out of his mind to preach me. The only time he had ever seen me, I was like up front preaching and he was like, oh my goodness, this is intimidating. This guy's scary. He was like super nervous. And then he like walked into my office and there I was like wearing like jeans and a t-shirt and had like goofy pictures on my wall. So I was like goofing around with him. And he's like, oh, 
Oh, I, he's not scary at all. What, what was I so fearful for? And he had an incorrect perception of me. Sometimes when we're scared of who God is and that scares us from coming to him, it's because we haven't understood who he really is. If we understood the love, the compassion, the grace that's in his heart, we would not be afraid of coming to him. And so if fear is holding you back from coming to Jesus today, can I just encourage you, challenge you to lean in and get to know who God really is? Not the stories that you've heard about God, not what other people say about Christianity. Lean in and discover who Jesus really is. Because so often we're afraid of things that aren't actually true of who Jesus is. So the parents shrink back in fear. The third response that we see in this passage, the third response is that of the Pharisees. They've been in the story, but now they step to the forefront in their response here in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. Oh, the irony, oh, the irony. We know, speaking of Jesus, that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know though, that though I was blind, now I see. It's like, I don't know. I just know one thing, right? I know what's true of my life. I was blind, now I see. They said to him, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, he's getting some courage. He's getting some edge, but he senses, right? This man starts to tell what's going on. And he's like, hey, listen, all I know is I was like this. And then I met Jesus and my life is utterly different for the better. So you can try and trash him all you want. He's like, but, but you can't get me into trashing him with you because my life was transformed. My life was changed by him. And he starts to get this courage about him. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. To be called a disciple of Moses would mean not just Moses himself, but the Old Testament was characterized as all of what Moses had written. We, we go back to the Old Testament. That's what we follow. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Verse 30, the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning, the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He starts to preach to the religious leaders. It's a pretty good sermon too, I might add. Pretty good sermon. Verse 34, the Pharisees answered him, you were born in utter sin, reflecting this worldview that if you had a physical infirmity, it was because of sin. And you would teach us and they cast him out. They cast him out. The parents were scared of getting cast out of the synagogue. This man wasn't scared but the, the thing came to him, kicked him out of the synagogue. We want nothing to do with you, get out. See, the third response 
that people have to Jesus is failure. Failure. Failure to see who he is. Failure to see what he's done for us. Failure to see the life that he has to offer to us. See, they were blinded by their own supposed knowledge of scripture. Their own knowledge of God is what blinded them from seeing who Jesus was. I want, to, I want us to, to dial in on this because I think this is so applicable for those of us who are here as a part of this church and who are regular people who go to church all the time and have a passion for studying God's word and want to grow in our knowledge, grow in our understanding of Jesus. Don't miss this. The people who knew the Bible the best missed Jesus by far. The people who knew their Bible the best entirely missed Jesus when he was standing right in front of them. See, we cannot equate biblical knowledge with spiritual health. Those two things are correlated, but it's not, it's not like, oh, if you have biblical knowledge, now you're a spiritually healthy person who's growing and maturing and understands what Jesus says. Now, please, I am not saying that scripture is not important, all right? I'm not saying just chuck this book out. Next week, we'll find a better one and we'll talk about that book. That is not what I'm saying, all right? One of our core values at this church is scripture, right? And it is, it's God's truth that we stand on and live by. Yes, absolutely, God's word is center to the Christian life. But a knowledge of scripture is not the best measure of maturity in the life of every believer. See, the default when we think of this is who's the most mature person? And we can start to tell ourselves this is it's the person with the most Bible knowledge. The person who knows the most about the Bible is automatically the most mature. Yet when we evaluate, when we start to look at the world around us and maybe even the people that we've known in the course of our lives, we've seen how this falls short. We've seen this in people we know, haven't we? People who are well-learned, studied in scripture, yet they're holding on to sin patterns in their life, full of bitterness, anger, jealousy. They've left a husband, they've left a wife. They've divided churches over unnecessary things, all in the name of their biblical knowledge that they can hold on to. See, the Bible warns that knowledge outside of love puffs up. Knowledge by itself leads to pride in our lives. And I've seen this in my own life as I reflect on what I've thought about where I stood before God. That when I focus just on how much I know compared to other people, it creates in me a sense of pride. See, I've been going to church for as long as I can remember. I was one of those families If the church doors were open, man, we were there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday, kids choir, like we were there, we were in. Man, I loved Awana because I could memorize more verses than any of those kids and I could school them. I could school them at their Bible verses. How about this? Do you, anyone else here remember sword drills? Remember sword drills? Now, some of you are like, dang, your church had swords? Like, that's awesome, man. What a kid's ministry. They're like back there. No, 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 no. Sword drills back in the day where you held your Bible, you had to hold it with the spine down so you couldn't cheat. And you're like, Sunday school teacher would call out a passage and you would like, the first one to get there wins. It's basically like kids are like, does that just mean like who can Google it the fastest? Yes, but there wasn't Google back then, all right? So we actually had to use this, all right? So, so it was like sword drills. And I remember, oh, I could rock the sword drills. Oh, I would school the other kids at the sword drills. I was so much better, so much faster than they were. It didn't stay there though. I, it kept creeping into my life. See, I went to Bible college and I studied God's word for four years. 
I have a master's of divinity where three years of advanced study. I taught the Bible weekly for now almost 15 years. But here's the reality, just because I know more about the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that I'm starting to live it out in my life. And for some of us, there's a disconnect in our knowledge of God's word and our application of God's word in our lives. See, I'm sure that there are people gathered here right now who've never been to Bible college, who don't know the difference between systematic theology, biblical theology, historical theology. They don't know Greek or Hebrew, yet they have a deeper, more maturing relationship with Jesus than I do because they know the Lord. That's right. That's right. Do you just want to get up here and finish? No, I'm just kidding. I love it. I love it. See, the measure of maturity in our lives is not just how much of scripture we know, but what do our lives look like as a result of the scripture that we read? See, the fruit of the spirit, the outcomes that God wants from us if the spirit is in our lives in Galatians chapter five, says it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the measure of maturity. If those things are starting to grow in our lives and we see growth more and more, then that's growth. Not just we know more about the Bible. Yes, the Bible should help us grow into maturity, but a knowledge of scripture doesn't automatically relate to that. See, one of, I think, the surest signs that we're doing this in our lives, that we're starting to slide into these patterns. Because I think if we've grown up in church and if we've been a Christian for a while, it's easy to slide into this worldview. I think one of the surest signs we've done this, which the Pharisees do here, is we start to use the Bible as a weapon to attack other people. We start to use our knowledge of scripture as a weapon to attack others. See, if you read the Bible and in your reading of it, you see what's wrong with everyone else but yourself, you need to go back and read it again. If our reading of scripture just causes us to be more judgmental, more arrogant, more prideful, then we have missed what the Bible is supposed to do in our lives. See, the Bible is not a weapon to attack others. The Bible is a weapon to attack our own sin. That should be our view of scripture. And we should see it causing us to see our own shortcomings, our own need for Jesus daily how we need to rely on him more and more. That's what scripture in our lives should look like, not some arrogance where we can go around and think of ourselves as greater than others. See, the Pharisees failed to see Jesus and they were blinded by their own supposed knowledge of scripture. May we not read scripture for our own benefit that we would look down on others and miss what Jesus is doing because we're so blind to him in the world. So this blind man, what a roller coaster of a day he's been on, huh? He's out begging in the morning. Some dude comes along, spits on the ground, puts mud on his eyes, tells him to go wash. He does, it works. All right, he comes back. Everyone's all over him. The neighbors, the Pharisees, his own parents are like, oh, you have to ask him. He's like, thanks a lot, mom and dad, right? Pharisees kick him out. Man, what a day. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he went after the man. He went and found him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? See, that's the purpose, remember, if you've been with us, of all the sign miracles. Not so people go, wow, but so people would see Jesus and believe. 
That's why Jesus does these things. He wants us to believe. Verse 36, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I want to, I I don't know who he is though. I want to believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Get it? You've seen him. Your eyes are open because of me. And now you see, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, the fourth response to Jesus we see from this man who was blind. And that's the response Jesus wants from each of us. And that is fidelity to him. Fidelity to Jesus. See, we see his quick response. It's so short, but it's so powerful in there that his his answer to Jesus is shown. He shows that he has surrender and submission to who Jesus is. Notice in verse 36, it says, and who is he, sir? It's actually in Greek, the same word as Lord, but context here helps us get it right. He's He's not saying this is my master, but that's just a common, nice way to greet someone by using this word. Who is he, sir? Polite way of greeting someone. And when Jesus reveals himself, he said, Lord, master, that that one who has authority over me. It's a sign of submission to someone. He submits to Jesus, surrenders to him. He cries out, I believe. I trust you. I have faith in you. I believe in you that you are who you said you are. And his surrender and his faith led to worship. And he worshiped him. This man became a disciple. He followed after Jesus. His life was transformed, not just physically, but spiritually. His life was utterly transformed. And that's what Jesus wants of us. When we see him for who he truly is, we submit our lives to him. We say, you are now the Lord of my life. I am no longer in control, but it is your will that is to be done in my life. We trust him with everything that we have, not just for salvation in the past, but for the challenges and the things that are coming to you today and this upcoming week. Belief is not just something that happens years ago, but belief in Jesus is needed every day because every single one of us this week will have things in our lives. And the question is, will I trust Jesus in this? Will I trust Jesus even in this? It's a life of trust and it's a life of worship. It's a life of worship, seeing our lives no longer revolving around ourselves, but revolving around him. This man's life has changed. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt remains. See in this story, the only one who has eyes to see is the blind man. The one who was born blind is the only one whose spiritually eyes are open and sees Jesus for who he is. But the neighbors, the parents, especially the Pharisees, they're blind. They're blind to who Jesus is. Everyone with physical sight has no spiritual sight. And the one who starts the story with no physical sight, not only has his physical eyes open, but his heart open and he sees Jesus for who he truly is as well. 
So we have these different responses to Jesus. The question for us is what is our response to Jesus today? What is your response to Jesus today? If you're checking things out, if you're like the neighbors and you just want to kind of glimpse from the sidelines, you're kind of fascinated, interested in what Christianity is, interested in what Jesus is, can I invite you today to move into a deeper commitment to him? To move from just whatever, I'll do this till something else better comes along to pursuing him in faithfulness, in worship, in trust. Some of us today are fearful of what it would look like to come to Jesus. Can I challenge you today to commit to discovering who he truly is and allow him to overcome those fears in our life? And some of us for years have just failed to see who Jesus is. We failed to see what he wants from our lives. And maybe it's our own biblical knowledge that's caused us to miss what Jesus is doing in our lives, to miss what Jesus wants from us. See, would we not be like the Pharisees and think that we see things perfectly? But would we realize our blindness and our need for Jesus? See, there's none so lost as those who do not realize they are lost. There are no one, there's no one who's so blind as the person who does not realize that they are blind. God, we pray that our response to you as you reveal yourself through your word would be like this man whose life was utterly transformed by your power and your touch. God, all of us were spiritually blind. No way to find you, hopeless in this world. But when you encounter us, the light of the world and our darkness, you can transform our lives. God, would you do that today? Would you break through the walls of fear? Would you break through the walls of failure to see you for so many years? Would you break through the walls of just a passing fascination and interest with you? God, would our hearts be ones of faithfulness, of trust, of obedience and worship to you? For you are a God who is so faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.